Welcome to Trailblazing Entrepreneurs, the podcast series from Salesforce App Exchange. In our podcast series, we chat to world-class entrepreneurs and founders and explore their journey, as well as share practical insight to build successful businesses. I'm your host, Sandra Peignot, Director, ISV Industry Business at Salesforce. And in today's episode, I'm joined by Mart Fairhurst, who is the CEO and co-founder of Scheduler. Scheduler is a software company based in San Francisco, where Matt joined us from today. Hi, Matt. How are you? Hi, Sandra. I'm well. How are you? I'm good. So where are you calling from today, Matt? I'm uh, in San Francisco in California. Not quite sunny today, but a little overcast, but that's also not uncommon. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure you're going to get a huge amount of sympathy from a, a French person <laughs> sitting in the middle of a a bleak uh, winter in the UK, but that's, uh, I'll tell you what, I was, uh, I was reflecting on, uh, you know, we've had some issues uh, scheduling this uh, podcast and I definitely see the need of how we could have used your solution to actually help us sort of schedule something today. That would have been really, really useful. So let's get into this. So did you always want it to be an entrepreneur? Uh, I don't know if it was ever really explicit, but I think when I was in high school and then probably when I was at university, sort of working uh, uh, retail jobs and anything just to get by, I always found it difficult at times to restrain my own creative thinking and work for other people and like always feel that constraint of like working for someone else. Not that I didn't enjoy it, but I, I think I always sort of felt this frustration of like, oh man, I'd like to be able to do something for myself and on my own. And I think when I finished high school and, and, and went through college, I was playing in bands and I think that that is a pretty entrepreneurial pursuit in and of itself. Um, you know, it is like running a small business. Once it reaches a certain point, you have to think about all these things and actually make some money if you can. So that was always a, a fairly entrepreneurial pursuit. But uh, I think, um, you know, it, it just grew and grew this sort of uh, desire to, to uh, try and do something somewhat independently from uh, the constraints of working for someone else that's fair enough did you say a band yeah oh excellent yeah. what kind of music was it <laughs> was it any good well it started when i was in high school me and my friends started a jazz band which was pretty lucrative we grew up in a, a town in australia that didn't have any jazz bands so we were booked out for every wedding and every party uh all through high school so that was kind of our first entrepreneurial pursuit and uh then when i left high school i was a, a drummer in a band uh, that was uh here in australia it was a terrible time to be in a band no Spotify or no one was buying albums or CDs. It was all pirated music and not many people were going out to live shows at that time. So, you know, it was a challenge. But uh, it, when we started Scheduler, actually, it was it was wonderful. It felt so much like being in a band, this group of people that was being, you know, very creative and, you know, traveling together and just solving problems together and hoping that people liked what you were producing. <laughs> so it was a similar feeling and I enjoyed both of them. So is that how the idea started or was it that came from something else in terms of uh, how you came up with the concept? Yeah, the concept for Scheduler came out of when I when I started working in tech, which actually hasn't been that long after I kind of came out of the music industry in Australia, I was offered a job doing marketing at the second Salesforce consulting company in Australia, actually, which was about 15 people at the time. And uh, that was growing very quickly. And I didn't actually enjoy that job very much. I, you know, marketing professional services was very different to uh, marketing guitar amps and loudspeakers, which <laughs> is imagine. what I'd been doing prior. <laughs> uh, you know, through that the, the sort of five or six years before, uh, then I, I learnt and self-taught myself graphic design and web design. Started my own web design company, and uh, you know, 
when I was in this role doing marketing, I, I fell in love with the idea of product management and product design, user experience design. And that company eventually got acquired and the founder of that company, Paul, helped uh, now the scheduler, co-founder and myself, James and I, to uh, keep running with the product that he'd uh, started and I was managing and James was building. And we built a small company around that, about 25 people over the span of around 18 months. And this was in 2012, 2013. And if you can imagine, or just remember back to those years, this was really when the iPhone had been out for seven years at that point. It had really matured and grown and there was Android phones as well. But you know, at that uh, point in time, almost everybody had a smartphone. And these smartphones were getting more intelligent, more capable of sort of running interesting technology, interesting software and apps. And the companies that we were talking to for that 18 month period weren't terribly interested in the product we were building, but they really wanted to talk about these challenges that they were facing with deskless workers and mobile employees. And they were sort of looking around and saying, I've got a platform for CRM, I've got a platform for ERP and financial management and HRAS. Where's the platform for all of these people that go out and get work done in the middle of the day? You know, these people that are very mobile and moving around. We're managing and helping them through whiteboards and spreadsheets and clipboards and, and paper. There's got to be a better way. And that was really the catalyst to you know, how we started uh, Scheduler and designed the product for these people that we were talking about. And they all got very excited. And that was kind of an inflection point for James and myself. Well, I like that because it's like... Um... I don't know, is that 3M, the story, you know, where they were starting with trying to do a glue with something else, you know, and they end up doing the poster. <laughs> so when you kind of, your three founders got together, did you, from that feedback you got to say, well, what about all the rest, all the things that, you know, my product currently doesn't do? Did you sort of know then that you had come across some sort of gold mine or do you still need to validate the idea? I'm really interested to understand how people sort of go from, oh, this sounds like a great idea to actually now I know it's a great idea. How did you do that? Yeah, I think that inflection point for us, because you're right, I think this season of going through this kind of pivot, I guess, but, but before then just talking to so many different businesses and then having this kind of repeated conversation, that was probably the first moment I was like, huh. They don't, they don't really want to talk about what we're selling, but they really want to have this conversation. It's happening over and over and over again. So there's got to be something there. And I found four companies in Australia that, that were having this conversation with us. One was a solar installation company. One was a healthcare, like in-home health company. One was a traffic management company. And one was a company installing energy efficient showers and hot water systems. And I did a Photoshop mock-up of what the product could look like and took it to all four of them. And that was our first four customers. They all signed an agreement for licensing for a product that we hadn't built, but we designed it. And uh, two of those customers are still customers today, which is so remarkable. And that was probably really the moment that, uh, you know, James and I really knew um, if people could fall in love with this idea just from something that we designed and really kind of visualized the, uh, this, this solution to a problem, then, then we're onto something. You know, if that's all it took, this must be a good idea. So that was probably the moment for us. Yeah, I love it as well. I mean, such a diverse range of early customers as well. I think that was a pretty tremendous. And to your point, a picture paints a thousand sort of words, doesn't it, in terms of having a, at least a, a visual something to go to. And, you know, I do a lot of work with, I suppose, scales and startups and actually fairly large company as well. You know, when we start to think about joint applications together and we spend so much time on the vision, but also so much time on the kind of the mock-ups because we think that sometimes it just advances the conversation. So actually it's nice you just validated that. 
as you found, if you have co-founders or, you know, part of the founding team is a designer, it's a real secret weapon, I believe, because I think when you are trying to solve a very painful problem for people, and it was, I mean, people really were struggling with this and it made work life kind of rubbish at times. But if you can kind of help them see visually and understand and then connect emotionally with a solution to that problem, uh, it's it's uh, very powerful. And um, it, it is always a bit of a secret weapon for founding teams to have have a designer in the midst um, to help with that motion if they can. What a great tip. I think Apple will probably agree with you. I think the way they design their <laughs> products and get people to fall in love. And I think, uh, I think it was in Brad Taylor, I think, did something recently about that as well. That was interesting. So when you started, did you always think you're going to have more than one product in mind? Because you've got a fairly broad range of solution right now. Or did that, again, come back from feedback customers saying, well, what about this and what about that? I think the recognition that this was going to be much bigger than we initially thought came pretty quickly. When we first started, we were like, hey, there are some old utilities and tools and some incumbent platforms that have tackled similar problems before. What if we could just kind of build the better version of that? But that quickly evolved, I think, into a recognition that when we think about sort of scheduling and organizing people and work that are deskless, people that don't sit behind a desk and they're not in an office every day, um, the use cases and the industries and the workflows that they go through are all uh, quite different. So there's an incredible amount of diversity there, but they're all anchored around these fundamentals, um, people's skills and their attributes and how far they are from you know where they typically work and these sort of common structures of work. And so there was enough of these kind of commonalities, but this wonderful diversity of application of those commonalities that we, um, I think, kind of figured out pretty early on that this was going to become more of a platform vision where you've got kind of the, the sum of these connected parts really contributing to an overall story, allowing us then to be much more flexible and creative and uh, diverse ourselves as it related to the market, which I think was a new thing and still is quite a different thing in a space that's very fragmented around one use case or one industry, for example. And I think we've been able to, you know, for a long time, maybe look past that and, and think a little bigger. Yeah, that really resonates with me because I guess, you know, some of the things sometimes what I hear from other entrepreneurs and founders is the need to find that common denominator, you know, that sort of connected tissue you just talked about, you know, that sort of common link across those platforms. And but also be able to, I suppose, differentiate and understand what's going to be common against such a diverse sort of set of, of things. So how do you do that? Do you have a whole set of market research? Do you do a lot of, I don't know, panels? You know, What's your kind of, uh, I suppose, incubation sort of market validation? Yeah, I mean, I'd love to say that it was that scientific. I, I don't think much is in the early days, to be honest. <laughs> um, uh, so that sounds all very academic and, and good, but I'd say most of it was actually just instinct. And to probably answer the question, I think you have to let the market and the and the customers and the problem that you're solving, almost more importantly, inform the kind of company and that the, the sort of magnitude of that vision early on. And there are lots of different ways to build technology companies and software companies. I think many, in fact, don't sort of take a platform approach early on and they focus on one individual problem that's very specific. It solves a set of very important needs and, and does a few things ex exceptionally well. Big companies have been built around just a single application that does these things very functionally. And that's or, that's amazing. I think that's great. If the market is telling you that there is incredible consistency around the same need that you can build around, then that's a great you know path, obviously, because there's so many success stories. If the market is telling you that, look, there's common fundamentals, 
but so many different ways to apply those fundamentals in, the, in you know, a, a sector like or, or a set of problems like the ones we solve, then I think you have to recognize that and use your sort of gut and instinct to say, okay, you know, we've got to probably think about this in a way that reflects and mirrors the need of the customer and, and the demands that these problems create. You recently uh, received a lot of funding, so congratulations for that first. Um, how did that funding happen? Did you select them? Did they select you? Uh, I, you know, I think it's always a, a bit of both. When, I, when we started the company, I actually had very little idea about venture capital and raising money. So that was an incredible learning journey that um, we went on together. And I was very lucky in Australia. There was a, a wonderful venture capital firm, Blackbird, that was uh, investing out of their first fund, And uh, Nikki and Rick, um, the sort of founders of Blackbird, were, you know, incredibly ambitious and I think have really helped to shape a, a change in Australian venture capital, which um, they can be very proud of. And it's amazing looking back what they, they were able to achieve. And it's a thriving ecosystem there now, but it was very kind of different in 2014. So, you know, for someone like me who had really no idea how to have those conversations, how to uh, raise money, they were very supportive and very helpful. And ultimately, they fell in love with the idea and the stories of our customers in those early days, the kind of transformation that they were going through and how impactful this could be. And, you know, I think they saw a clear need in the future, like mobility wasn't going away. People that, you know, work away from the office is kind of the oldest form of work, uh, in fact. And so I think they kind of resonated with these ideas and were gracious enough to uh, invest in us in our seed round. Of course, we'd had kind of Paul as well, that kind of uh, investing uh, co-founder very early on who was incredibly supportive. So, you know, I had a wonderful network in Australia that kind of helped me and James and the company in the early days kind of figure some of these things out, which now feel very rudimentary and, and normal, uh, especially here in, in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. But, you know, back then in Australia, where I was from, it was a little bit newer and fresh. And I think every round since then that we've raised has gotten easier and easier. I think the conversation and the narrative has gotten easier as well as this inflection point to you know, shape and identify this incredible need in an underserved market of productivity in the enterprise has just become clearer and clearer over time. Um, we just raised our Series C with, with SoftBank leading uh, and uh, all of our other investors, M12, you know, Cosanoa and some others uh, around the table doubling down as well. So they've been incredibly supportive and it's just great to see. I think the market really resonate with this story more and more along the way. That sounds like an incredible story. And what do you wish you knew then that sort of, you know, now you talked about, you know, some of the things were rudimentary, you know, what, what were they just, I guess, for someone that maybe starting the journey and starting to get some attraction or some interest, I suppose, from VCs, what would you recommend they did? I mean, there's lots of lessons learned across the entire spectrum of the business. But if we just think about fundraising itself and, you know, raising capital, I think the first one is um, there's, there's maybe two good lessons. One, one was actually with Blackbird. You know, I, I was very inexperienced. I didn't, uh, I'd never raised money before. And I remember a friend who I just met actually introduced me to Nikki from Blackbird and uh, Nikki set up coffee and I was going to fly to Sydney and have this coffee and catch up. I had, really had no idea what I was sort of walking into. And I, I Googled Blackbird on the internet and I read their sort of investment thesis and it was, you know, very focused around, you know, bottoms up selling and uh, these kind of wonderful organic growth, you know, product led growth uh, methodologies um, that was sort of very non-enterprise in its focus in those very early days. You know, I, I emailed Nikki at the time and I said, oh, mate, I, you know, I don't want to waste your time if we don't, uh, you know, want to have this coffee and you've got better things to do. That's all right. 
because uh, you know we do sell to the enterprise. We not many of our users are kind of bottoms up growth models, and that's kind of changed a little bit over time. But I nearly, that was almost the end of the company. I think if he'd said, yeah, okay, this is a waste of time, then it would have been the end. <laughs> but luckily, you know, he said, hey, let's still have coffee and I'd love to hear the story. Uh, and it was kind of the story and, and, you know, these wonderful stories of our customers that I think he was really convicted by. So lesson number one, maybe don't read into <laughs> individual theses too much or get too wrapped around these axles. <laughs> I think if you have the opportunity to have a conversation with uh, folks that are leaning in, then, then you should. I think uh, the sort of latter lessons learned around fundraising is to, you know, as you go through these cycles, be really deliberate about uh, who you really want around the company and on the board and sort of part of your support network from an investment perspective. These people and these firms become such an incredible part of your journey, but also so tightly coupled um, to your journey. So you have to be really deliberate and clear about the kind of people you want to work with, um, their values as investors and uh, you know, the, the firm's values. And I think um, we've done, uh, you know, a great job of that, certainly through luck in the early days, but through really kind of deliberate thinking as we go through these rounds, you know, who do we want around the table? These are very much like marriages. And I know people say this all the time, but uh, these are these are definitely relationships that last the, the duration of a startup's life. So I think that's really important. I was going to use the word marriage, but you just took the word out <laughs> of my mouth. That's definitely what we heard from uh, from other people is that sort of that real need to be an alignment of values, of personalities, of, of visions. And uh, ultimately, there are going to be a lot of people they're going to be, uh, you're going to be spending so much time with. But also the uh, one of the things I think it was from the CEO of Go Cardless was around the the need to have those tough conversations as well and almost have those relationships that they may be right for you at a certain stage of your life, but they may not be right later on. And having the courage, I think, were the word they were used to maybe just break up, right? So I remember it sounded like a relationship cancelling sort of podcast because there was a lot of concept of sort of marriage relationship, sort of breaking up. And I don't know whether you agree with that concept of some people are there for the long run and some people are there maybe for part of that journey. Well, I think that's true, um, you know, across the, the business, you know, even, even employees and other people through the life of a startup. I think our job often as founders and leaders is to help people continue to grow and mature on their own journey. And sometimes that's not forever and trying to help people leave gracefully and find them the next chapter in their path and their journey is, is important, I think. From an you know, investment standpoint, I think you know, when people are ready to exit a, a company's position because uh, it's, it's no longer in their sweet spot or they've had the yield or the, the growth that they're looking to see, that's got to be fine and okay. And I think it ultimately comes down to making sure that you have these relationships that can support these hard, challenging conversations. I'd say maybe less so from like them uh, exiting their position in the company, which, you know, we've not experienced ourselves, but, you know, things don't always go well. In fact, lots of things go wrong uh, when you're building a company and to have people around the table that you can have really hard conversations with, and they're going to be there to help you through those really tough moments is super important. And I think you mentioned the the power of your network at the beginning was, I suppose, less so in, in Australia, probably more sort of today. So so what do you lean to, you know, when you need that, you know, from a business perspective, what do you lean to when you need that sort of validation, that sort of, oh, I really need to check this with you kind of stuff? Is there like a, a set of go-to people you, you rely on? Yeah, it, I mean, certainly the folks on the board um, these days and part of those sort of groups that have invested in the company for sure. But I'd say the best network that I was able to grow in the really early days, and this partly came from the experience just learning from 
Paul, this kind of first investor and, and co-founder of ours, who was an operator. He was a CEO of this other company that got acquired and, you know, was on, also on his own journey as a leader. So finding people that are just slightly ahead of you in the in, the, in their leadership journey or their journey as a CEO has always been really valuable to me. And this is something I've tried to really maintain is finding people that I can build relationships with and continue to build relationships with that are uh, ahead of me on this same journey. I think these people are the best ones to kind of get around when you say, hey, I'm going through you know these three or four things. What did that look like for you? How did you get through it? <laughs> what did you do wrong? What did you do right? There's no better experience, I think, than these kind of people that are right there on the journey with you and, and sort of slightly ahead. And I think as a, a founder and a CEO, you also have to remember your responsibility to do that for others as you grow as well. And being a mentor and advisor and, you know, getting around people that are sort of slightly behind you on their journey, you know, is, is really important. I think uh, that's always been some of the most help for me. I'd say the other thing that I've tried to do around a support network was to start reinvesting in friends. And there was a <laughs> period there where you're just working so much. And I was, I moved countries and all these things happened in my life where uh, you're kind of rebuilding your friendship network again and, and anchoring yourself around those that have always shared these common values and will always be for, be there for you through success and failure. And um, I think that was a really important part sort of outside of work and people related to work that was uh, critical for me. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, that check and balance we all need you know whatever sort of walk of life and things we need that uh, sounds like you have surrounded by a fantastic group of people so you schedule has gone through a, a hyper growth sort of period or actually not period it seems to be a hyper growth all along you know in, in recent times so what are the challenge that you face and, and i guess the second question is will you prepare for them uh, yeah, not not often, uh, but I would say <laughs> I think some of them, you know, you, you the best ones are when you are kind of prepared or you can prepare quickly when when they you know arise and they appear. And, and this is something I've always tried to get better at. I wouldn't say that uh, I'm nailing it yet, but this deliberate sort of motion you can go through to look forward and say, well, what is coming next? What's the leader that I need to be in 18 months? What is the person that I need to be, how do I sort of behave and act as a leader? And how do I kind of skate to that puck um, rather than kind of always react to this change that's happening in the business? You know, it's really difficult, I think, often when you're really heads down trying to build a company and build a product and build a team to anticipate all the things, especially early on. And you are very reactionary, at least I was, and sort of trying to force yourself into a motion where you do kind of pull your head up and look forward and anticipate some of this change is, is pretty important. Uh, but some things just come at you out of left field as well. And you've got to kind of build the muscles to, you know, react to those uh, and sort of anchor around the things that are important to you in those moments. How do you make that space? Because um, I was on the leadership course not too, too long ago and they talk about, you know, as you grow through your stages of career, there was this percentage that was, I think, something like 50% of your time should be spent on, you know, reflection versus sort of the doing. And I thought, okay, I'd love to do that. But, you know, I, I just, I'm not sure whether, whether I'm not doing it right, whether I'm not making enough time. So what's your, what's your trick in terms of getting yourself that space and that elevation? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know that I have the answer because I, I, I'm certainly nowhere near 50% of my time uh, doing that yet. But I, I, I will say that it, every time you do make these kind of deliberate um, moments for space and thinking, the yield you get from that is always very powerful. You know, even if it's just a, a day to sort of rest and think 
and read and anticipate or write in your week or you know once every two weeks. I think just starting somewhere, even if it's half a day or a week uh, every quarter or something like that, you've just kind of got to be very deliberate about how you carve out these times to be thoughtful and reflect and plan and think. But it's very hard to do. Like when you're in the weeds and you're in the moment, trying to create that space feels very unnatural. And there's so much that you can be doing. Um, it's, it is really difficult. Um, so I think don't beat yourself up uh, if you listen to this and you, you don't feel like you're going through it, because I don't think I do this at all <laughs> well, but I think it is incredibly important. It does yield uh, if you can pull yourself out of the day-to-day and, and uh, take that time to think. I think you use a very interesting word, which is muscle. I guess it's that muscle to build and trying to slowly and gradually sort of go through that. Um, so final piece of advice for anyone that is thinking about, or either I've started a journey or thinking about turning their hands to um, creating a company, what would that be? Yeah, I think the best piece of advice, you know, we've talked a little bit today about like, what are these big kind of moments of, you know, challenge as you're building companies and also having people around you and these support networks. I think sometimes you don't always have the support you need. You don't always have the answers that you're, you, you need to turn it, progress and, and take you to the next level. And I think in those moments more than ever, it's so important that you have a, a well-defined and anchored value system, both as a company. So what are the values of the organization that you're wanting to build, but as an individual, as a leader, and maybe they're the same. Um, for me, that, that there's a lot of overlap between our company values and my own personal ones. And in those moments of struggle and challenge, they're the things that you can anchor around to bring you back and say, how do I answer and solve this problem? Or how do I work through this when I don't have everything I need or don't have all the advice I need? You always have your values. And if you've been really deliberate about defining those, they can help you kind of navigate these challenges. And that was really important for me. It's been always very important for the company. And I think the earlier you can do that and really shape this value system, the better off you'll be. And how do you capture that today? Do you, I mean, I can imagine this on your <laughs> website and every presentation, but what's your day-to-day reminder? Do you have them on your, I'm just trying to visualize what that looks like. So I've got things for me, three or four things that are really important to me. And I've got them on pieces of papers and stuff like that. And I'm like you, uh, when things go a bit funny, you're like, okay, is it really, you know, that important, that critical, you know, what does it mean to my value? What, what does the value sheets look like? Yeah, I think it's um, incredibly important when you do create values that they don't just kind of get written down and put in the top drawer and sort of forgotten about until you refresh them two years later. Um, you know, for us, we've created a, a a brand for our culture called Schedule Heart, it's similar to Salesforce with Ohana. And, you know, I think Mark has done an incredible job at sort of leading by example and providing the example to leaders about how you think about values and branding your culture so that it actually elevates itself above just a set of values and these five or six things that you try and anchor around as words or paragraphs and uh, reinforces the need to make sure that you're demonstrating how those values are actually articulated in the business, whether it's, you know, stakeholder capitalism or the way that we think about working together and the, the way we think about hard conversations and problems or giving back, you know, these are all ultimately these articulations of the values um, that, that Mark uh, created. And we try to do the same thing at, at Scheduler with, with Scheduler Heart. This is something that we own collectively as a team. The way that we actually manifest those values that can be the best reminders of what that means. You know, what are the wonderful examples in a company where these values have been so well demonstrated? Then it becomes habit and like a muscle rather than uh, just a reminder on, on a note or a poster on a wall. 
Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation we met today. This is the final episode of season three of Trailblazing Entrepreneurs, but watch this space for more inspiring conversation with world-class founders and experts about building successful businesses. Be sure to subscribe now so you are the first to hear when new episodes are released. In the meantime, all the episodes from season one to three are available for you to enjoy. So digging into hours of great conversation will trailblazing entrepreneurs across the globe, such as David Schmeier and Tiffany Stannard. Goodbye for now.